Thanks, Diane. So, um, um, I have done, I was saying before, I have done kids' talks here at church and been up the front. This is the first time that I've done uh, an adult's talk. So, I feel a bit like um, Dave Barker. I want to put an L plate on and say, be gentle. Um, And I will do my best to uh, take us through this passage in James. Uh, So Called to Act is what we called this this series. And the book of James has been somewhat maligned, um, or at the very least not looked very favourably upon in um, church uh, history, for the very reason that his letter seems to put more emphasis on the idea of action rather than faith. And Martin Luther even called his... Uh, letter, An Epistle of Straw, but it really is a practical book, as Ella was saying earlier. And so over the next three weeks, uh, Ella Kell and I hope to unpack some of the book of James and help us to think through what he's teaching, how we are called to act, and why, as James himself says, our faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So I thought we would start by looking at who is James and why should we listen to him. So... James, uh, it starts by telling us uh, that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't really tell us much about him, but it is believed that this is the half-brother of Jesus. So let's just stop and think about that for a minute. The half-brother of Jesus. Imagine what he knew. Imagine what he lived with as he grew up. Imagine the things that he would have known about Jesus. And he's here writing a letter to us. So I think that's... um, That's pretty awesome to just even stop and think about that for a moment. But even more than that, he was not initially a believer. Uh, In fact, his brothers, uh, Jesus' brothers, ridiculed him. In John 7, it tells us that Jesus' brothers said to him uh, around the time of the festival of tabernacles, you should leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. It kind of smacks of the Pharisees at the cross. If you're the son of God, bring yourself down now. They really did ridicule him. But uh, sometime before Jesus' ascension, it appears that James has been converted and he is following Jesus. Um, That's because uh, Paul records that Jesus appeared to James between the resurrection and the ascension. Um, And that's in 1 Corinthians 15. And it also tells us in Acts that Jesus' brothers were counted as, uh, as, you know, being with the disciples and praying with them in the days before Pentecost. So um, James definitely did um, come to know who Jesus was. Imagine that. Imagine all the light bulb moments that he would have continued to have about, now I understand why he said this. Now I, I know why he was... said that and I did that to him and he didn't do back to me. Uh, We also know that James became a leader in the Jerusalem church. Uh, That's it tells us in Acts 12 and Paul refers to him as an apostle. So he's pretty high up and he was wise and well versed in the Jewish law Um, and so he was able to help iron out some of the important issues that happened uh, in the early church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Um, So he really does have some credibility. I think it is worth us spending these weeks listening to him and seeing what he has to say. Um, Verse 1 tells us that he's writing to the 
Jewish Christians. So what is it about his letter that we should know? Um, they were dispersed, um, which means that this isn't going to a particular church, but these were people that were no less beloved brothers. And as I was doing my preparation and reading through the letter, um, I was thinking, geez, James, you're pretty harsh. You're pretty uh, full on here. But as you read it more, you do see there's a real softness. There's a real love and a desire for these people to come to know Jesus and to live God's way. Um, it's a general letter that needs to be disseminated to various churches. And so that means it's going to cover a broad range of topics, which is really good because it's covering topics that will be relevant for us here and now across time and space for all Christians. So that's good. Um, much of his writing also mirrors Jesus' teaching. Now, in your booklets, you'll find a table that looks a bit like this. And it kind of sh shows you and compares... Uh, where the things that James says is mirroring the things that Jesus said in his teachings as well. So I thought that was just a handy one that you can go home and have a look at. I'll mention a few of those in tonight's talk as well. Um, he's also quite uh, proverbial. He's got a little, few little proverbs that he throws in along the way, little pithy sayings as well. And I really like this quote by um, someone, as I was one author as I was doing my reading, at no point does James formally quote Jesus. He had soaked himself to such an extent in the teaching of his Lord that he automatically, automatically reflects it in his own. I would love that. I would love to just have Jesus teaching such a part of my DNA and part of me that it's just who I am and what I do. And that seems to be the way that J James just talks. He talks and it's like the words of Jesus are just right there with him as well. His letter is believed to be one of the earliest documents. It, it predates, it's believed to predate Paul. So it's a really good one for us to look at and see what was the early church thinking about? How foundational were Jesus' teachings? And so chapter one is like an introduction. So it's going to introduce the letter to you, but also some of the topics that Ella and Kel are going to be talking about over the next few weeks. All right, so let's get into chapter one. James doesn't pull punches. There's quite a few times where he just goes straight to it. And right there at the beginning in verse 2 is where he starts. He says, uh, can it joy when you meet trials? He's very clear. The Christian life is not an easy life. We will have trials. Do not be deceived about that. Don't fool yourself about that. We will have trials. But what are we to do when we face those trials? Well, this is where... It's just as shocking. He says, to count it all joy. Now, I don't think he's saying you should be happy about it. He's not having a Pollyanna view about things. But he's saying, have joy. And that's where I go, well, that's not my normal reaction. What on earth are you talking about, James? Um, my usual reaction to facing a trial is, oh, why is this happening? Or, oh, again? Certainly not one, naturally, of... See the joy in this. But that's what James wants us to do. Are you serious? Why? Well, he explains that in the following verses, verses 3 and 4. It says that you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we're viewing these trials biblically through God's lens, the trials will lead us to maturity. And so that can look like this. Trials lead to a testing of our faith which helps us to persevere to maturity. Now, I told you before I was an early childhood teacher, and when I uh, used to teach the kids, 
uh, I really liked this book, Upsy Downtown. Some of you may have heard of that. Uh, there's also a song that I used to sing with the kids as well. It was lots of fun. And I thought about this book as I was reading through this letter of James, in particular in chapter one. So I want to read it to you and then explain to you, why is she, okay, why are you going down your rabbit hole of early childhood? Well, it's fun and it's colourful, but also it serves a purpose. Okay, so we'll read through. In Upsy Downtown, the sky is in the sea, the fish are in the air where the birds should be. The rain is falling up, instead of falling down, in the world of Upsy Downtown. And the book goes on to tell us how things just aren't right. Cows are hanging off branches and you walk on your nose instead of on your toes. And, you know, there's a walrus driving a train and a chicken flying a plane. And the birds in the book seem to know that something's not right, but everybody else is kind of looking around going, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then we get to this page towards the end. In Upsy Downtown, the birds begin to hop, the rabbits start to fly, and then the birds shout... Stop! And you can imagine three and four-year-olds love that bit. They know what the word stop looks like. Everything is on its head. Turn the book around instead. So you literally have to turn the book around. In Downy Uptown, the sea is down below. The clouds are in the sky and the fish know where to go. The birds are in their nest. They really need the rest. Good night in Downy Uptown. Now, what's that got to do with James? I think that we live in Upsy Downtown. We look around and everything that we see, we think that's just normal. That's the way that life should be. But I think James is really trying to help us to see that's not normal. We live in Upsy Downtown. It's not the way we were created to be. We were created to be in relationship with God. And we're not. It's a broken world. He wants us to be mature in Christ, and we're not. We struggle with that. And I see James being like the birds in the book that's shouting, Stop! Have a look around you. This is not the right worldview. We should be in Downey Uptown. That's where God is. God's in Downey Uptown. That's the right way to see things. When we're following his worldview, when we experience trials and we're tested in our faith, we're refined in our faith, we persevere through things and we come to a maturity in Christ, that's the world that we should be living in. And that's why we should count trials as pure joy. But that's not the way that I naturally view trials, I have to say. Now at times in James's letter it can be hard to follow his train of thought. He is a little bit bullet point in my view And so sometimes it's hard to find how are you getting from that to that to that. But I'm doing my best to see if I can help us work through that in this chapter. So he he looks like he bounces from one idea to another. Um, But I think his next point about wisdom actually does connect with that whole idea of trials being tested, persevering and maturity. He says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. And why I think he's saying this is because... Isn't it common when we are in experiencing trials, we just we want to know what to do. How, what do I do? What do I say? What's my next move? How do I... Where? I don't know. And James is saying, well, if you lack wisdom, then ask God. 
And that seems like a good and perhaps an obvious thing to say. So why does he even need to say it? Well, I think it has to do with his point about trials lead to testing. And like I've been saying, testing is not an exam where we pass or fail. Testing is like a refining of our faith. But there's uncertainty which comes from trials. And uncertainty can lead us to uh, feel confused about things. Like, well, where is God in all of this? Why is this happening? Does God even care? Or fear that things are out of control. This is a big one for me. I I hate things being out of control. And when things are out of control, I just want to grab everything and pull in tight and withdraw from the world. Sometimes we, we experience anger. That seems like a really natural thing. Why is this happening? This isn't fair. But that can lead to outbursts. That can lead to angry, you know, violence. Or it can lead to hopelessness and despair and depression if it just isn't. So we really need God's wisdom to know, how do I deal with these trials? And James says that when we ask, God will give generously. And that mirrors what Jesus teaches, doesn't it? Ask and it shall be given. And James has a real thing about God's wisdom here. And I know Kel will pick up on this in her talk. So make sure you stick around for what she has to say. James sees our wisdom as completely futile. It's God's wisdom that we need. Now, while we're talking about uncertainty, uh, you may ask, well, you know, James goes on in verse 6, Kylie, to talk about doubting. (laughs) Uh, Is it the fact that I doubt means that that God will negate, you know, how I'm feeling and will, will not give me things that I'm asking for? I don't think that works. I don't think we can play mind games with God. I don't think that's what's being said here. I think the one who doubts, James is describing here, he goes on to say that's a double-minded person. And he talks about the double-minded person in chapter 4 as well. And I think what he's describing in these contexts is someone who's just not fully on board with God, someone who's got a foot in their own reliance and a foot relying on God and you know that they've got an each way bet or, or they've got a plan B in case God doesn't come through for them I think you know it's the un- it's the instability we can have doubts but we can still trust God this is not the unstable person that James is referring to here this is somebody who who really doesn't trust God who just really you know is not is not implanted And James has said that God will give generously to all. So how can he say that and then say, but you can't doubt? God knows that we will have doubts. God knows that we're not sure. That's why we need his wisdom. He's not going to not give it to us if we ask him for it. So uh, I think, you know, the, the doubts and the uncertainty may come, but it's more about us. It's not about doubting who God is. So how does this biblical worldview of looking to God for wisdom, this downy uptown way of looking at things, help us when we're experiencing trials? Well, uh, if you are having a, tri- if you are in the midst of a trial um, and you lack wisdom, uh, ask God. I think the testing is actually asking us, well, where do we go first? And so often, I don't go straight to God, but think that's what he's asking us are we going straight to God are we seeking him or am I looking to me first and then I might fall back on God are we trusting him as we persevere through what might be really muddy mucky mire of a time but we're trusting him to guide our path 
We don't need to doubt him. He will give generously as we ask him. And then using that trial, he will develop our steadfastness and our maturity in him. And that's what will bring us the joy. It's the relationship that we're growing in. It's the way that we're learning to trust in him more and more. Now again, James kind of changes tack. And we're up to verse 9 now where he's talking about lowly brothers and rich. I think here he's reiterating those ideas from Upsy Downtown. Because he says that the lowly brother is to boast in his exaltation. But even that wording just doesn't make sense. Lowly and exalted, those two things just don't seem to go together. Same with the rich and the humiliation. But this is God's downy uptown view of things. Because chapter 2, James tells us that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So it's God's view of the world. And the Bible does have a lot to warn us about wealth. And again, if you go back to the table, you'll see a few references there about that. And James will go on to say more about material wealth. And I'm sure that Kel and Ella will pick up on those uh, in the next few weeks. But I think what James is reminding us here in this section is that our wealth or our lack thereof has nothing to do with our worth in God's kingdom. And the pursuits of the rich are futile because their security is in this life only. He says in verse 11, they will fade away in the midst of their activities. And doesn't that just remind you of the parable of the rich fool? But there is greater security in our faith in God. And again, that mirrors Jesus' teaching in talking about uh, you know, our worries, our anxieties. Does God not look after the flowers of the field? How much more will he look after us? So there is great for our joy for us now in persevering through trials, and being steadfast in God. But ultimately, what James wants us to remember is our greater hope. Now, in the ESV, verse 12 is the beginning of a paragraph. In the NIV, it's a paragraph unto itself. And I think that's really helpful because I think it helps it to stand out as kind of like finishing off one section and helping us lead into the other. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the reminder that James wants us to have that the refining of our faith through trials means that we will receive the crown of life that God has promised. There is a certainty in that. There is a real solid certainty and foundation in that. Now that's all well and good. But if you're like me, this isn't always the way that you respond to trials. And James acknowledges that. He goes on now to tell us, look, there is another way that people will respond to trials. He's not recommending it. He's just making it known. And that is trials can lead to a temptation to follow our desire to sin, which ultimately leads to death. So, for example, we experience unjust treatment and we want to retaliate with our words or our actions. Or we may be persecuted about something and we want to take revenge or harbour hatred against the person. 
or we experience financial hardship and we covet and we're jealous for what others have. And in verse 15, James says that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's really frank about that as well. So we must not be deceived. Temptation is from us being enticed by our own desire. But verse 17 reminds us that God gives every good gift, even in the midst of trial. God is the same no matter what, in the good, the bad, and otherwise, he is the same. There is no variation or shadow in our God. So instead of looking to us and our circumstances, we should look to him and his purposes. And this will help us to persevere to maturity in Christ. And this will make us his example or his first roots of living out for him the way that we were created to be in Downey Uptown. Now, as I was preparing this talk, uh, I was thinking about my responses to recent trials. As luck would have it, God graciously gave me opportunity to experience trials. Don't you love it? And in one particular, I felt so angry. It was something that happened to me. I hadn't done anything to bring it on. It was just something that happened to me. And I responded really harshly. And I thought that that would make me feel good. I stopped and thought about what I was doing before I did it. And I thought, I'm justified in my response. And off I went, slamming doors and yelling and screaming and going off my nut. And then I sat back down and I did not feel satisfied at all. I felt horrible. I felt sad for the way that I'd responded. I'd broken relationship with someone that I loved. And I had to go and say sorry. I had to repent of my actions. And then I had to start from there in the testing and the perseverance. And I'm still going through that trial and the others. But there is a real joy in knowing that I'm following God and following his way and sticking close to him. By golly gosh, who else do I want to be near in the midst of a trial? Who else can I trust? And I know that God's promise of the crown of life is mine. It's truly mine. And I'm not perfect. Praise the Lord that Jesus came to die for me because I am a sinner. And I can persevere to maturity and that's not going to be perfected in this life. But the promise is I will have that crown of life. I will have my perfect life with my wonderful God. And I can practice that now by following James' example or I can lead the other way. But it just didn't bring satisfaction. Uh, James finishes chapter 1 with some pithy sayings. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And an unbridled tongue makes our religion worthless. Yeah, I can attest to that. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we must also be um, caring for the vulnerable, our outward acts, as well as keeping unstained from the world, our inward uh, acts, looking after ourselves. Um, 
James talks more about that in the rest of the, the letter. And I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks to keep reading through James and just keep marinating in him and seeing what he has to say as we keep going through these talks. But for now, what can we take from this introduction to his letter? Well, trials are going to come. We live in upsy downtown. So don't be mistaken, they will happen. And we can respond in one of two ways. We can see it as pure hardship. We can follow our own desires and our temptation to sin. We can complain and we can retaliate and we can have an unbridled tongue and ignore God, which will eventually lead to our death. Or we can see it as joy, that he is testing our faith and helping us to persevere and remain steadfast in him, looking to him and his purposes and coming to maturity as we receive his crown of life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. And though we live in upsy downtown and think that that's normal, you really desire for us to see a better way. Lord, help uh, these words of yours be something that we can take and understand how to see them in our own lives. And Lord, when trials come, to perhaps, perhaps be a bit more prepared in how to respond so that we can be your first fruits, your example. Understanding that we will fail, but knowing that you are a God who forgives, picks us up and helps us to move on. Lord, help us to make the most of these nights and particularly this discussion time now. And we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.